You've reached the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I have a wonderful guest here today, Mr. Timothy Long. Uh, Timothy Long currently works at, at a nonprofit organization that helps people with education getting their high school diplomas and their GEDs. He has previously worked at UPS, worked at a restaurant, and as I said earlier, he's he's working with a great nonprofit, and we're going to get into that right now. He's also getting his bachelor's of science in mathematics which is amazing and then he wants to go on and get his master's degree uh mr long spent 26 years in prison and he had four consecutive life sentences and life terms he's going to get into all that in his process and how he's become the wonderful person that he is today and uh yeah and we're going to talk about a bunch of myths and other things that in, in his own experiences going through the system and all the things he's learned and we're going to go through that process with them. And so, hey, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, thank you for having me, sir. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. He calls me, sir. So, <laughs> hey, you never call me that, Tim. So it's all good. Um, so, you know, and I didn't mention, too, that you worked a lot of nonprofits, too. And, and it's interesting because um, one of the things I love about you, Tim, is that you, you got these other jobs when you got out. But the job you have today is because of all the volunteer work you did. And then people started saying, hey, who is this guy that's doing volunteer work on top of a regular job? And that, that ended up getting you a job. That is exactly true. Um, I was volunteering for five key schools and program as like a teacher's aide, essentially, um, at Glide Memorial in San Francisco. Um, like three days after I got out, I went and Glide. I was like, hey, can I help some people? And it was like, yeah, come on. And I was doing that for a while, but I was giving, having these small jobs working with UPS and I was working at um, a restaurant called Keller and I, really I was making enough money, but I needed like a full-time gig. So they was like, well, you can come work with us. So they hired me on as a teacher's aide. And from there, um, I've been there with them for like six years now and I've um, promoted through the system. Um, and I've run into some roadblocks and some stumbling blocks along the way. Um, like everybody else. Um, but you know, I can't really complain. Well, I mean, you're doing amazing things. So I have to just, I have to give you credit. And then when you get your master's, don't forget about us, especially in mathematics. So you didn't, it wasn't like you, uh, you, you picked the easy, uh, easy major. That's for sure. <laughs> no. Um, well, my bachelor will be in mathematics and I'll have that this coming on end of the school year. Um, my master's program, I'm thinking it's going to be in like leadership or something like that. I mean, who gets a master's degree unless you plan on go a master's in mathematics, unless you plan on going into teaching at a co um, collegiate level or something like that. Um, so I, I want to, I think maybe leadership or maybe a, a business accounting or something like that. I want to be, I want to stay with the company that I'm with. Um, but there are some roadblocks that would prevent me from becoming a teacher. So. Yeah, no, it's just all good. I get you. But let me ask you this. So let me ask you, Tim, when were you born and raised? Um, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, um, but I was raised in Detroit, Michigan. Um, my mother um, was really en route from the East Coast to Detroit when she had me in Cleveland. And she kept going to Detroit. And that's where I was raised at um, my entire life. And what was, do you have any brothers and sisters and what was growing up like? And when did you come? I guess you moved to San Diego eventually. How'd that happen? Well, well, first I do have brothers and sisters. I have quite a few. Um, for my mother, I just have one, one younger brother. And, but for my father, there's a whole tribe of us. <laughs> um, you, we all pretty much grew up together a lot of times. Um, my father, um, one of the few great things he did, he made sure that we all knew each other. Um, so even to this day, um, we're all in our fifties or what have you, when we get together in summers, um, going trips together, just all my brothers and sisters. So you know, we have a great relationship. Um, and what was your relationship? Like you said, one of the things your dad did, um, what was that relationship like growing up with your mom and dad? What was the relationship like with, with your parents? Um, well, I was essentially raised by my mother for, for one, um, my father, um, my mother had me when she was 16, so she was a teen mother. Um, my father was not really around a great deal of time. Um, he would pop up every blue moon just to see what his son looked like. Um, but he did not do a great job at that a lot of times as well. You know, I was I would be one of them stories where if you can imagine a kid standing at the window looking out for his father to come driving down the street, but his father never show up. 
that would have been me um, as of like five, six, seven years old. And, and what was that like for you? Was it, was it a struggle financially for your mom to raise you guys? And what was it, what was it like growing up? Um, for my mom, I mean, she did the best she could. I mean, as a teen mother, and then she was in her early twenties when um when I was like five, six years old. So she um she did go back and get um finished high school or got a GED. Um, she took some college classes, and but she worked in the medical field for a lot um, during those early years that I can remember. Um, so she did. I, I would say she did a great job with me and my younger brother. Um, even though she's had a couple failed marriages, dudes that I mean. On, on it, when you look at it from the front, they were some. They you would have thought they would have been some great guys, but they really weren't. Um, she's married now, and she's married to a, a great guy, my stepfather. Um, he's a cool dude, um, Southern guy. Um, has a great ranch down there in Southern Indiana that I love to go visit. And what was it like growing up for you, Tim? I know, like I said, and we're going to get into like your the history and just kind of how you got into, you know, you started getting into some trouble in the system. Growing up, did it start when you were when you were younger, or did this happen when you when you became a, a, a teenager? Or what was that like? What was that the progression for you like? Um, I would say for the most part in the um, developmental years, I was really just an average kid. Um, but then when one when one of my mother's marriages failed, we were forced to move with one of her friends, um, and her friend had an older son who was like seven eight years older than me. And that guy was berserk, I, but nobody knew but me. Um, he was abusive. Um, he would do all type of weird stuff to me, which had me really in a state of fear um, the whole time that we stayed together. And that was like um, probably from age seven to 10. Um, and it was that really fear mentality that I had from him that really change some things in me from the person I probably would have grown if, if I had not experienced that because that fear turned into like a constant anger or um, I'm not going to let anybody do anything to me. I'm going to do something to somebody else before they have an opportunity to do something to me. And it was that evolution from fear to anger to um, now I'm going to become this thug because if I was this thug in the beginning, maybe none of that would have occurred to me. I mean, it would have um, happened to me. You know what I mean? So um, that it was during the, those years that really altered really my compass from the person I probably should have been or would have been um, into the person who became, who saw it easy to carry a gun, who saw it easy to sell drugs, to steal stuff from people, um, or, all the other myriad of crimes that I committed in them teen years. Tim, when did you come to the realization like that you said, hey, you know what? There must have been some point that you had the realization that these formative years that you said seven to ten, you you must have processed in some ways that, hey, this significantly changed me. Um and, it was, and that, why? That was during the years of incarceration. Um, when you really because Incarceration, you have a lot of time to think about yourself, think about your past, think about um, how you developed to the person that you were and how I got these multiple life sentences. And when I when I started thinking back on it, I was like, what changed me from that average kid that everybody loved to the person where you if you would have walked and um, seen me coming down the street, you should have crossed the street to avoid me. And it was really that pattern of aggression that i developed it was like they call it toxic male aggression is what it's called now but mine developed from from that experience that i had of being um abused for them years and i realized that while i was sitting in the cell at pelican bay and when did you start when did that 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 process start with you when you said you started going into like moving in and hanging out with people that probably weren't pushing in the right direction. You said you started to become, as you said, a thug. Um, when did that start? Did school start falling off? Did you, did you, were, did you, was your parent, was your mom around? And um, how did that? Yeah, that started in the early teen years when I was maybe 12, 13 years old. Um, living in Detroit still, um, Detroit East Side. And if you know something about Detroit East Side, it's equivalent to maybe East Oakland, which is probably why I like East Oakland, but because it, it, it's, 
it's comfortable to me, even though I shouldn't be comfortable to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, because I had experienced those situations of being um, abused. Now I became this hyper aggressive person where you couldn't abuse me. You couldn't even say anything to me without me taking it to the next level. Um, because if, because that guy was older than me, any male figure who was older than me, who tried to tell me something, I automatically assumed that he had bad, bad intentions. And because I assumed he had bad intentions, he couldn't say anything to me or I would like flex up on him. Even though I was a kid, I was, I wasn't the greatest kid in the world, you know? <laughs> and, and so let me ask you, during that time, when was the first time that you had contact with the criminal justice system? And then how did your mom deal with that? The very first time I had contact with the criminal justice system, I was 12 years old um, in Detroit. Um, it was me and some guys. We were, I was shooting a BB gun and right behind my house, just doing some kid stuff, shooting cans or whatever I was shooting at. Someone called the police and said I had a gun. And it's very similar to the Tamir Rice situation where all these cops just popped out of nowhere pointing guns at me. And I got this BB gun in my hand. Um, it was only the grace of God that I'm still alive today behind, from that situation because it could have ended up just like the um, Tamir Rice situation. Um, they told me to drop the gun. Um, I dropped the BB gun and told me lay down. I laid down. One of them ran up to me, kicked me in the back of the head. Um, and I was 12 years old. I was arrested that day. And oddly enough, I hadn't seen my, my actual father for probably three or four years. I don't know how he knew or how he found out I was in jail, but it, he the one that came and got me out of jail that day. And I hadn't seen him for years. And then did that, how did your mom deal with that? And then how did it start to cycle from there? Well, my mom knew it was a BB gun. My mom knew I had the BB gun. Um, so she still saw me as a, as a, I was a quiet kid around her. She didn't know that I was really this bad kid in development at age 12. <laughs> um, so for her, it was, it was like, well, it was just a situation where the cops got carried away or what happened. She didn't know that I was this kid that was really about to turn into this really thug felon. She would have never, you couldn't tell her that I was going to become that person. Did, did going to jail, did that scare you at all? Or what was that like for you? Um, it did not scare me for some reason. And I, I think back about it. And when I think about schools in Detroit, it, well, everyone's familiar with the school to prison pipeline, how schools are, are heavily policed. That's how schools were in Detroit um, from middle schools to high schools. Um, so I was not really scared of being in jail, even though I was only in there for initially when I was 12 for a few hours. It didn't bother me. So what, it wasn't a big deal for you. And then when did you get arrested again? When did it start becoming like a habitual thing and, and for what kinds of things? Um, though I had committed a, a various amount of crimes between the age of, say, 13 through 19, I had never been arrested. Um, call it the grace of God or call it whatever you want. I wasn't arrested. I wasn't arrested again until I caught my life conviction offense at, at age 19. So Tina, how, what were you doing during the other years? Were you Was school something that was important to you? Like, what was what was your life like? Um, school was easy to me. Um, I, I caught on with concepts very easy, especially math and science concepts were very easy for me. I mean, I could, I mean, I could write fairly well. So school wasn't, wasn't the issue. Um, it was maybe a boredom of school, which was the issue, which caused me to start skipping classes a lot at the time. Um, I played sports in school. 
um, sports were easy for me. Um, even though I was a tall kid and I could play basketball and I could play football, my mother really wouldn't let me play um, on the high school teams because I only managed like a C, maybe a B average. Sometimes I and when I wasn't going, she was really like, no, you can't go on the swim team. You can't do this. You can't do that. And I, I can respect that because she wanted the best for me. And she knew me just being in sports really wasn't it. So what was your plan? Like after, after you, and how did you get to San Diego? Did you right after high school, did you go to San Diego? Nope. What was that? What was, how did that happen? I stopped going to high school in the 11th grade, just because I had so many absences and I have been doing these um, other crimes in Detroit um, in the, uh, this is like the middle eighties. And I, I was, must've been like 16, 17, where I was still in all these cars. And now the police was really looking for, me and the other guys that I knew within my family or what have you who were still in these cars. So I left Detroit and I moved to South Bend, Indiana. In South Bend, Indiana, I really carried on the same mentality that I had in Detroit. Um, I was now staying with my sister. If I was 16, she was like 20. Um, she, my older sister, this is um, Nita, great, great woman. Um, but she really didn't know what to do with a teenage brother who was really just running wild. Um, she tried her best, um, but it, it didn't work out. So at age 17, um, while walking down the street one day, kind of intoxicated, I'll, I'll admit that, I stumbled into a recruiter office, drunk, and said, can I sign up? The recruiter said, sure, you can sign up. Now, I was 17, intoxicated, without a high school diploma, and they said, yeah, <laughs> which was funny when you think about it. Um, they said I just had to get approval from my parents. So um, I called my mother. My mother was like, if you think that's best. And I called my father because they needed both parents' approval. My father was like, boy, you shouldn't do that. But it's better than what she was doing. So I ended up joining the Navy. And that's how I ended up in San Diego, California. And how long were you in the Navy for? Um, I joined at 17. My commitment offense is at 19. So I was in the Navy for a couple of years. So did your community offense happen while you were in the Navy? Definitely while I was actively in the Navy. Um, because largely my mentality hadn't changed at all, even through boot camp. Um, and I'm surprised I made it through boot camp because I was still this hyper aggressive teen male. Whereas my drill sergeants, and you know how drill sergeants can be, they I they figured out fast that I had an issue with authority but they didn't know what to do about it because even though they can t they thought they could tell me what to do and to the large majority i would do it but it would always be some pushback until they figured out well maybe we'll put them in a position where he'll help other people pass so they made me like um in boot camp it's almost like a um, what is it called starboard watch section leader whereas you're in charge of a bunch of guys while they're in boot camp so I helped them pass throughout the physical portion or whatever and um, educational portion of boot camp. But I was still this hyper aggressive dude who you just couldn't tell anything to. But I passed boot camp, went on to through um, aid school while in the military. Then they shipped me out from Great Lakes, um, Illinois, where I went through training to San Diego. And I was stationed at 32nd Street Naval Base on the USS Germantown. So then how, it's it's very interesting that you were in the military and most of the time you hear that people, when they go to the military, that changes them. But in this case, because you said, like you said, you had such a, your mentality wasn't in a place where you could really accept a lot of that. Right. And they, and they didn't know what to do with it. So, so how did the commitment offense happen? Um, my commitment offense happened while I was on um, unauthorized absence for one. It was right before um, the Desert Storm situation in the early, um, late 90s. I mean, late 80s. This must have been like 88, 80, 89 or something like that. Right when um, all them ships were starting to deploy to go to the Middle East. Um, I was on AWOL and I was trying to figure out how I was going to get back on the ship. I'm talking to some guys on the ship. They was like, well, you just turn yourself in. You go to the brig for such a long time. Then they send you back to the ship. And it is what it is. All right. But I had no money. I was like, well, how do I get some money until until that point where I decided to turn myself in before the ship deploys? Um, so me and this other guy who was um he was a, a former Marine or he had just got out the Marines or what have you. 
I was 19 and um, I think Terry was like 26 or 27. Um, we were hanging out together, drinking together. He was like, well, let's go out and get some money tonight. I was like, well, all right, come on, let's go. So I went out with him drinking uh, with guns in pocket and we ended up committing this um, robbery which turned into four counts of kidnap because we were on this busy street and when we told these guys to get in the car, it turned to kidnap. And kidnap carries life sentence. And were you armed at the time? Yes. I had, um, what was it, a 12-gauge shotgun. And you said that you had four counts. How did it turn into four counts, though? Um, because there were four victims who we put in this car just to move them off this busy intersection to commit this robbery. And then how did you guys end up getting caught? Uh, <laughs> so the robbery turned into, uh, it's not a funny story at all. It's really some buffoonery that we got into um, where I have to go with this guy to go get the money out of his apartment building. My crime partner at the time parked the car illegally on a university parking lot where they have university police patrolling and they saw the legally parked car, grabbed him and the other guys that were in the car who were also kidnapped victims told them that I, the other person, was still in an apartment with their other um, friend. So as soon as I came out the apartment building, police were there waiting on me. So you went to trial and had you been, to, you had not, it's interesting, you had not been to prison or you had never been to prison and you'd only been to that jail that one time when you were young. Right. What was that like for you when you were convicted and what was going through your mind process wise? Did you, was there any regret or you at, at the time? And what was that process like for you? For me, it was almost too easy to acclimate to the thought that I now had committed this crime and I now had essentially a life without possibility to throw sentence. When you think about it, I got four consecutive life terms where I can't get out until I die, come back, die, come back, and then come back again. Uh, will I actually be eligible for parole? Um, and like I said, growing up through the Detroit public school system, it's essentially a segue into the prison system. When you think about the, we had actual police patrols on our um, school campus. Uh, we had to walk through metal detectors um going into school um there was a police substation on the campus um so it was almost a mirror of that system so when i was sentenced and getting into prison it was like oh this is like walking into my high school every day when you first went into what prison did you go to initially um my initial intake was at um because I was in San Diego County, it was um, a reception center in San Diego, um, right outside of San Diego. I think it was El Cajon or something like that. Um, and it was the that prison escapes me the name of it because I was only there a short amount of time. But from there, they sent me to New Folsom. I stayed there for a short amount of time because I was really supposed to go to Old Folsom, which is directly across the street from it. Um, and I stayed in Old Folsom about a year. Um, this was in 91. Um, in January of 92, they opened up a new prison in Southern California called Calipatria. And that's where I, they sent me to open up that new facility. And I stayed there um, initially like four years. And then I went to just about all the maximum security prisons in California uh, from, from, one, uh, from one to another, just because I was really just being a being an ass generally in all these prisons and so my custody level kept going up higher and higher uh, until it really couldn't go any higher so can you tell me about that like what put you in that state of mind did you did you want to be that way or did you say hey you know what what is the what is the mindset of somebody that gets a life term at least in your situation and um, and, and why did you think you were being that way and what kind of things were you doing I know exactly why I was being that way. Um, I was 19 at the time. Um, I might have been, yeah, I, have, I was at, I was 20 when I was still at Old Folsom. And then I was 21 when I was at um, Calipatria. Um, I was a non-affiliate. Um, I wasn't a gang member. 
and guys when i was in county jail they was like guys knew me they knew my personality they knew my demeanor they was like tim you're gonna have some problems when you get to prison because you're non-affiliate i was like i don't care i'm non-affiliate it is what it is um they was like well maybe you should become a muslim or a christian or what have you and then it would be a little easier for you and to me i was like i don't want the easy route um it is what it is I'm not finna become a Christian. I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, I am a Christian, but I wasn't finna use a Christian as a crutch to try to save me from whatever is going to happen. Um, I wasn't finna look for protection from being a Muslim. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to be me. So I just stepped in there and I really pulled up the most aggressive version of me that you could get um, at a, as a skinny 19, 20 year old kid. <laughs> um, so whatever fight there was to have, I was I was gonna fight it. I wasn't finna dodge it. I wasn't finna walk around it. I'm I was I thought I was a man, um, and I was finna walk it as a man. So I did a lot of all the stuff that you do in prison. Whatever fight it was to have, I fought it. If it was a knife that was supposed to be carried, I carried it. Um, if it was a riot or melee to have, I almost died in it, but I was in it. <laughs> it, it was that prison stuff that, and it wasn't easy. Um, when you got guys trying to stab you just because of the way you look and you got to protect yourself. So, I mean, and you walking alone in the prison. I mean, other than being black, that was my only commonality. Um, because of all there was first you black and then it starts segregating into different gangs or religions or whatever. But I was just a black guy in prison. Didn't run with a gang, didn't run with a faith. So I ran by myself. How how uncommon is that someone that just runs by them by themselves? I, I find that to be very uncommon in the prison system. Usually people align with somebody. Is that correct? Um, usually they do. Um, but it's not uncommon. Um it, it's officially called unaffiliated. If when you um when you go and get to the prison system, they ask you where are you a crip, are you a blood, are you a Muslim, are you um kumi or what have you, and you say, No, I'm unaffiliated. And they're going to put you down as unaffiliated. You are not anything. And mostly guys who are unaffiliated are from outside of California. And uh, there are quite a few of them within the prison system. Um, they were like, I found out there are a lot of guys um, within California prison system that are from Detroit, Chicago, from the East Coast, from Southern states. And they all were unaffiliated. And what's the politics like in prison? Can, is there a lot of politics in, in the prison system? Um, politics is ridiculous. It, you, you, um, definitely there's politics just with, between, between the races. Then there's politics between the gangs. Then there's politics between, um, based on the segregation of yards, um, where you eat at, um, uh, where you can use the bath at, use the bathroom at within the prison yards or whatever. Everything is segregated from day one and you know it. Um, it, it actually begins in county jail. Um, where the segregation begins um, and people just carry that same segregation mentality straight to prison. Um, if you're black, you can do this over here. If you're not black, don't go over there because you go over there, they're going to try to do something to you. Uh, that's that, It is what it is. And you have to be able to um, acclimate to that mentality um, because if you stray from it, it can get you killed instantly. And so at what point did you realize, I mean, I think you and I had a discussion earlier when you got the four life sentences, did you just give up hope and say, this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life? How was that process for you? And then how did you change out of that mindset? Um, I did. Um, with four life sentences, I have no expectation of ever getting out, um, which is why initially why I was just acting the way I was. I mean, I was like, I'm going to, whatever the prison um, stereotype person you thought should be is what I adapted for myself. Um, so I did everything to break prison rules. Um, if it was making knives, if it was um, participating in all the melees and riots, um, making different, um, they call it Prono, which is inmate manufactured alcohol. I did all of that um, for about 10 years straight until i realized at some point it was it was useless i mean i had been through um like new folsom old folsom calipatria 
High Desert, which was another prison I had had to open in like 2000, I mean, in 96. Then they sent me to Pelican Bay. And I went through all these prisons just because I was really just being a jackass the entire time. And when I got to Pelican Bay, I, Pelican Bay was one of the worst prisons that you can pretty go to. You can go to in the state of California, if not in the United States. Um, it was during the war years between um, black guys and Mexicans. And I still held that mentality initially while I was there and got into whatever the prison riots that were, went along there. Um, you remember the big riot that they had in, um, I think it was like 1999, maybe 2000, that was, got a lot of publicity. I was right in the middle of that, almost got killed in that also. Um, but it was during the lockdown that happened directly after that, that I started to really sit in the cell when, and I was sitting in the cell for about a year, really just thinking about my life the direction of my life, how I got to that point. I mean, I still had no expectations of getting out of prison at all. I, I knew that I was going to die in prison for sure. Um, but I didn't want to be that same person because when I got, it was like maybe 99 or 2000, I forget exactly what year it was. My grandmother passed away and I had, and she was one of the few people that I still talk to occasionally. I mean, I can call her and just hear her voice and I would feel a little bit better. And, but when she passed away and nobody told me she passed away, not my mother, not my um, brothers, sisters, nobody told me she was just gone. And then I got a letter from an ex-girlfriend that sent me the obituary. I was like, how am I getting an obituary from my grandmother and ain't nobody told me my grandmother passed away? That really hurt. Um, and that's when I really was like, I don't want to be that person anymore. Um I signed up for I signed up for a GED class while I was at Pelican Bay. I'm still on lockdown. I studied for a couple weeks and I got my GED and I think it was like 2000 or 99 or whatever. Um, and the guy who was the, like the GED instructor, he was like, you passed this and this is the second highest score that anybody has ever seen who passed the GED from that institution. And the only person who had the highest score was the guy I was helping in math because <laughs> uh, he scored a couple points higher than me. Um, he was like, you really should be in school. You should be doing something. And I was like, you're probably right, but I'm in Pelican Bay. What is it to do beyond this? <laughs> and, and Pelican Bay, for a lot of people, if you can describe maybe your average day in Pelican Bay. Um, can you repeat that? Uh, I for people that for our listeners that don't know what Pelican Bay is, uh, if you can explain what Pelican Bay is and and what's your average day like? I know that at one point you spent most of your time in a cell by yourself, correct? Yes, I did. Um, Pelican Bay is the maximum level for uh, prison in California. That's like um, the worst of the worst. If, if you committed a murder in prison and they want to send you somewhere, they're gonna send you to Pelican Bay. If you um, attack some officers while in prison and they want to send you somewhere where you're going to really regret it. They're going to send you to Pelican Bay because it's, it's very controlled. Um, that's where all the, they send guys like who committed these heinous crimes. Um, either even outside, they send them directly to Pelican Bay. If you are a gang leader, they send you to Pelican Bay where, where you have limited contact with, um, gang associates. Well, supposedly have limited contact. Um, and my days there was really just sitting in a cell um, a lot of the time because a lot of time I was in a hole for whatever reason, whether it be um, melees or get caught with a knife or um, MA manufactured alcohol. But um, but then you can go out. I mean, there's like a social, um, they have a main line at Pelican Bay. And I was on the main line for a while. And main line is really just if you don't have a job it's really just go out go lift lift some weights if they had weights at the time or go out and do some calisthenics which i was a, like i was a calisthenic king then um play some basketball stay as healthy as possible because you knew you had to stay healthy because eventually the next war line the next war is about to jump off again and you don't want to be out of shape um 
that's essentially the top and bottom of Pelican Bay. Uh, stay healthy because it's about to go down eventually, and that's guaranteed. And so you said you got your GED, and it, it's it's very obvious to me you're a very, very smart guy. <laughs> um, so you got your GED, and then you said your grandmother passed, and you, you wanted to um, – you know, in some ways, it sounds like you wanted to honor her in some ways and say, you know what, I can't keep living this way. Um, and then and you started to do your GED and then where to go from there, because, you know, you that's a huge leap from, you know, 10 years of, of being in, in, in the most difficult situations in the prison system, getting your GED. And then you just you, you made a complete turnaround, which is really amazing that you had that kind of insight. Where do you think that came from? Um. I don't know where the insight came from. I just knew that trying to be the baddest person in prison wasn't really the thing to do. Um, and fortunately, I had been on lockdown so long at Pelican Bay, my points, my prison points started dropping down, which means my custody level started dropping down. And they transferred me out of Pelican Bay to Ironwood State Prison. And in Ironwood, they just happened to have a college program there. Um, so as soon as I got there, I signed up for it. Um, signed up for, and I also signed up to be a tutor for one of the ABE classes. Um, the guy who had who had um, did the test for me at um, who had administered the test at Pelican Bay, he had wrote me a chrono that says that um, he did a great job. He'd be a great tutor or what have you. And I took that chrono. I went to um, Ironwood, showed it to one of the teachers there. They hired me as a tutor. And I did that at um, Ironwood for a few years while uh, participating in this college program. Um, the college program, though it was free um, to take the classes, you still had to buy the books. And I didn't want to be a burden to my family. And so I very rarely asked for anything. Um, and plus, the state takes... At that time, it was probably 22% of whatever funds that you got coming in from your family. The state would take 22% of it for um, restitution or inmate welfare fund. And that kept going up. It would go up to 33%, went up to 44%. So I never got money from my family. The only thing they would send me would be if I needed some shoes or what have you. And they, they'd send that. Um, but, yeah, I, I signed up for these college classes. And I really just stayed in school while at the entire time I was at Ironwood um, and because the books were not free, I ended up talking to one of the um, teachers there and talked them into um, sponsoring a fundraiser and with the funds just buy books for anybody who wanted to participate in this college program so that they wouldn't be a burden to their family. And we earned um, almost $20,000 from this fundraiser selling pies and chicken and we bought $20,000 worth of books. Um, for all the college classes that um, courses that were available. And so you really got into school that kind of you started focusing your life on school. And where did you want the school to take you to you just wanted to? What was the purpose of it? What did you want to do just to better yourself inside the prison? And where did you see it taking you? Um, for me, it, it was it was part of a past pastime to do because I have a lot. You have a lot of time in, in themselves to study. Um, but it was also just to get to know myself, get to know the world better, because I I essentially, even though I had traveled, I really didn't know anything about the world, didn't know much about myself, really. So taking all these various college classes allowed me just to get a different perspective of life in general, um, different cultures. Some sociology classes that teach you a lot about different cultures. Them anthropology classes teach you about the world. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And the math classes, Math came kind of easy to me, um, so I, I really um, excelled in those classes, and I helped a lot of other people excel in their classes because I was still a tutor, and then I became a, um, a tutor for the college program at Ironwood as well. I would help guys do that, do their math studies or what have you, and so that they would do well on um, specifically the math classes. So, Tim, I'm just wondering, it sounds like it made you feel really good to help people. It's like you kind of found a niche for yourself. Is that is that what you're thinking? You know, it felt good to give back and initially, I mean, yes, that's exactly what it was. Um, you could, I don't know what it, maybe it's like an intrinsic value that you get from helping other people. You see their success or whatever, 
and, and their success helps you feel good. Um, that's a lot of what it was, I believe. Um, just helping other people become better people. Um, some of the guys that um, I help get into them college programs and pass certain classes, I talk to them now and they be like, man, I'm glad that you was there and you helped me get into that sociology class or whatever class it was and helped me pass it because, I mean, it, it gave them new insight upon themselves and allow and really probably was the catalyst to them getting out of prison. And so it was a catalyst for you getting out, obviously. And then when did you when did you realize that you'd have an opportunity or a chance to get out of prison? Um, I actually still when I I had completed probably three different AA programs um, in, in prison. So I had these three degrees. Um, then I signed up into like an alcohol drug counseling certification program. I got the specialist one and specialist two certification with no expectations that I was getting out of prison. This was just something I wanted to do to know about myself, to know about my family, um, um, alcohol abuse within my family or what have you. Um, it, none of that had any, had no, gave me the inkling that I was going to get out of prison at all. Um, what initially got me to thinking that I might get out of prison one day, um, I was at, where was I at? I was at San Quentin State Prison from 2011 to 2016. And San Quentin is a different breed of prison. Um, I'll just tell you that off the top because it's, it's almost ran like a, like a college environment. Everyone in there is either going to college or you're going to these self-help programs, you're going to these trade programs. It's, it's almost a, a developmental program to prepare you to get out. Even though I had no idea that I was getting out, um, I signed, I, I was still doing, doing college. I was now doing like, um, pre-calculus classes through, um, a, uh, a college program they had there. And then it was called PUP, Prison University Project, ran through Patton College. Um, now it's, um, Mount Tamateas College. Um, so I was still doing that. I was running a GED program at San Quentin and we were doing, um, the introductory to college math classes, doing tutoring for guys after they complete their high school diploma to prepare them to go to PUP. Um, and then right around 2000, I think it was 2014, you, I started hearing um, about this youth offender law. And if you had committed your commitment offense um, before the age of 24, they deemed that, all right, you did not have the mental capacity to understand the full reper, uh, repercussions of your actions or what have you. I was like, all right, I get it but I still got these four life sentences. So it is what it is. I appreciate it. And it's going to help a lot of people. I didn't think it would help me. Um, what it did do was it allowed the parole board to call, to consider me for parole early. Um, and they signed me a parole date, um, a parole hearing date. All right. I was like, okay, parole hearing. How many times have everybody been to the parole and been denied? A whole bunch of times um so i was like all right i went there with the best of intentions i mean i know myself very well so and i prepared a little packet of the stuff that i had done while in prison um and all of this classes that i've taken self-help groups i've taken none of that was with the intent of getting out of prison it was just the intent of bettering myself and i sat there in front of the parole board they asked the questions i had an answer for every question um, the victims of the offense, they were, they, they were at the parole hearing, um, via, um, telephone system or whatever. Um, they was like, this is definitely not the same guy that we saw when he was 19 years old. And the parole board, they looked at my record. They looked at the good and bad and they asked me questions about the bad. And I told, I was straight honest, the same same things I told you why I did all them bad things. I told them because I thought that's what was expected of me at 19, 20, 21, coming into the prison system. And how so, old were you, and how old were you at the time, Tim? When I went to the parole board, I was um I was 44. So, you, was were there, so, so, you, so you were there from the age of 19 to the so age of, of 45 before yes. you had a hearing. Yes, I was. And surprisingly, they was like, you are suitable for parole. And shocked me because for one nobody ever gets found suitable really on their first time going to the parole board um but they said that i had enough insight 
upon myself and my actions why I committed those crimes and why I wouldn't commit further crimes. It was like, you're no longer a threat to society. I cried like a baby. <laughs> and what was that transition like for you when you got out? What was that like for you? Did you know what you wanted to do? And was it scary? Was it scary to come out? Um, actually, for me, it was not scary. Um, I went from, they took me from San Quentin and they dropped me off at the bus, uh, the bus station over there in um, um, Tiburon somewhere. Uh, gave me a bus ticket, told me to go to San Francisco and gave me the address where I was supposed to go to. Um, it wasn't scary for me because being at San Quentin, it, it prepares you to be sociable for one. You don't give off this mentality of the individual that's been locked up for um decades or what have you um so i mean and i did have a girlfriend at the time who later became my second wife um i still had the support of my mother she was out there and all my brothers and sisters so the transition for me um it wasn't terrible i mean i still ran into some stomach blocks because it was just a lot of stuff i didn't know um that had occurred over that 25 years of incarceration <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think I think what you hear most often is, and I think people don't. There's a some people don't understand that, you know, when you went in, they had pay phones. You come out, right. there's no pay phones. They, they had no texting. They had, you know, not everybody had a cell phone, or you know, people really didn't have cell phones probably when you went in. Right. They were probably using pagers and other stuff. So, um, you know, most most of the time when you apply for a job. You, it's all done online. How are you supposed to start that, right? So right. What, were those some of the things that you had to learn? And what was that process like for you? Were you ever, did you ever get to a point where, oh, my God, I don't know. How we, where do I start with this? Well, my mother is very tech savvy, so she helped me out a lot. <laughs> um, my my ex-wife, she sent me a phone as um, soon as I got out of prison. I sent it to the halfway house that I was staying at, at um, downtown San Francisco. Um, she, she helped me understand that process of just using a phone, um, applying for jobs. Um, my first job that my very first job job that I got a check from, that was from UPS. And the only reason I was able to really secure that job without having to go through an online situation was because, um, the facility that I was at, um, one eleven Taylor, um, they had, they used to run like job interviews for people there. And um, someone from UPS that came just to do like a basic interview for everybody who was there to see who wanted a job there and who would qualify to do it. And that's how we ended up getting that job at UPS. And that was um, it was, a, it was an odd job. I mean, it's a, it's a job for sure. And you better be in shape to do it. <laughs> um, but I had to get up at like three in the morning. I had to be there um, in, so, in South San Francisco, like four in the morning, just to work this four hour shift from four to eight in the morning. Um, so I'm working that four to eight an hour, four hour shift or that early in the morning, left a lot of open time. And I was doing, um, the volunteering at, um, five keys at Glide Memorial. So I would do that from like nine to, um, nine to three in the afternoon, just volunteering, doing some tutoring. Then I had a second job working for, um, a restaurant that was also in San Francisco waiting tables. And I would do that in the evening. So initially, when I first got out, my days was really full, like 18 hours a day. I was working. I, the only thing, only reason it took me to the halfway house was because I needed a shower and a bed to lay in. Other than that, I was working 18 hours a day. Really? And it's more and it's more of a halfway back, like to help transition for a lot of people. So um, and then did you start getting more confidence? You had been down for so long. Did you find yourself a different person when you when you came out than when you went in? Uh, I was definitely a different person um, than when I went in um, because I now had respect for myself and respect for other people. Um, instead of taking from people, I gave to people. Um, I always put my first, my best foot forward in everything, anything I did. Um, if there was an effort that needed to be um, given for a task, I gave 100% of that effort. I didn't just half step it or whatever. Um, that's why I did good. Even waiting tables, I was 
people was like, dang, this is a nice guy. <laughs> um, even working at UPS, strenuous job. It was a workout every day, but I enjoyed it every day. Um, but what I really enjoyed was really just helping the people that stay in the Tenderloin in San Francisco um, to really in, improve their situation. Um, that's why I really enjoyed volunteering while I was at Five Keys initially. Um, I would help guys um, get housing at whatever shelters was available, make sure they had uh, food, because if you came to class, then you went on a certain list for um, to be placed in shelters or on a food line or whatever. Um, I enjoyed that. And now you're working at a, a nonprofit now that actually provides services to um, juveniles and adults and to, to help them get um, their high school diplomas and their GEDs and really to go on to college as well. And you, you worked in this organization for a while now. And what kind of stuff, what have you learned since, since being there? And has this kind of, is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? Because you seem like you're like a natural teacher. Um, I do really enjoy my job there. Um, currently, I'm an education coordinator um, for this for the organization, and I've been in that position now for a few years. Um, I'm also on the DEI committee um, for the company. Um, I'm the chairperson of the um, Abide, which is DEI for teachers of the um, company. Um, how did I get that position? I don't know. I didn't even vote for myself. I didn't nominate myself. <laughs> they nominated me and I, I became, I won. Um, they saw my ability to put the best needs of those that we serve first and not my own needs or the company's needs or whatever. I'm really about, because it's DEI and we, we're dealing with diversity, inclusion, um, it, it's really needed um, within the community because I personally work down in um, East Palo Alto right now. And East Palo Alto, it, it's a great community, um, but it's still some need there. Uh, ever since when, when you look back at the history of East Palo Alto and how it used to be like a, a red line community and people couldn't live there unless you worked at um, Apple or what have you in that area. I mean, it's still some impoverished people there that still need assistance. So I enjoy working there. Um, the facility where I work at, we also do um, training for construction programs. We do training for medical assistant programs um, to get your certification. And if you don't have your high school diploma or GED, um, everyone is referred to me. So that's what I, I prepare people to get careers. And if you want to go to college, um, we do um, all the all the preparation that you need to do to, to go to college or to find that career that you want. So if you had to go back in time and what would the younger, the older self tell the younger self in terms of advice and what kind of advice would you give to teenagers and adults and people in prison on kind of like how to turn your life around and how to move in a direction that's more positive? If I were to go back and see my say 13 year old self, I would tell myself that education is important. But what's even more important is always doing the right thing. And doing the right thing isn't hard. It's, it's an effort to do the wrong thing, for sure. To do the right thing is instinctual for most people. Um, that probably would be the most important thing. Uh, because that would have prevented me from going down that road uh, where harming other people became easy. Uh, and... What I tell, I, I do tell young people now because I get a lot of students who are um, credit deficient from their traditional high schools, whatever. They be 16, 17 year olds, some of them be on um, juvenile probation or what have you. Um, I tell them the truth of what it really is and that going, going down a path that you're going, it won't be fun. It won't be easy. Your homeboys ain't going to look out for you. Um, you become a maybe a burden to your family. Um, and it's easier to get a job. You'll make more money with an actual job, going to school and get an actual job, than you'll probably make um, out there hustling for real. And, and if you really think about it, this is what I tell them. You don't see very many rich hustlers out there. You see a bunch of dead hustlers or hustlers that are doing life without prison, without parole in prison. You don't go see many out there. And I let them make the choice. Because now they see it, they be like, 
you're right. <laughs> and a lot of them really will choose to do the right thing. The, I mean, they may, they may have made some mistakes and then that's why they own probation or whatever, but it, it gives them an opportunity to see a bigger picture than just what their homeboys telling them or what um, the guys when they, while they were locked up in why youth authority or whatever was telling them. And then what, how do you motivate people if they say to you, you know what, school's not for me. I just never been good at it. I don't know. I want to finish it, but I don't know how to start. And I, I'm afraid. What kind of supportive services or what can people do to just, you know, start moving in that direction? It could be, like you said, going to university or just going back for education, like personal growth wise. What kind of advice do you give people to, to go for it? Um really just to be the model of the person that I was and the person I came and I, and they know who I was and the person I came and they can, they can see that path that I went through. And generally that's enough. Um, and it, it, it never hurts to just try to do more to better yourself. I mean, and they know this, um, I go to, now I lately they've been having me um go to the county jails down in um San Mateo County and it's primarily to do um outreach for guys once they completing their sentence in the county jail portion to if they want to go back to school to come to five keys and we'll help you finish getting your high school diploma, get you in a trade or what have you. Um so I I use my past as an example for them um uh, because we all they can they can easily walk the same path that I walk. Um especially being that hyper aggressive male that I was at their age, 18, 19 years old. Um we're all almost the same person. I'm just an older version of them that that I, I'll just walk the whole path until I find figured out the right way to go. And if I can do anything to prevent them from doing that same walk, I will. I mean, I, I I'm brutally honest. Um, beginning of next year, um, I'm going to start a mentorship program. Me and a bunch of guys that I know who all are former life center, life, life, um, prisoners who are all out doing great jobs now, still helping the community. A lot of guys that you also know, Fig, um, we're going to, um, get approved to go into all these San Francisco, um, County Alameda County, um, Santa Clara County jails, just to sit down and really have honest conversations with guys. Um, and you know what? One thing, Tim, I really like about you talked about having victim insight. I think we talked about this um, prior to getting, have, you know, you being on the program was that you have a lot of empathy for your victims too. And when you talk to folks, one of the things you do is you say to somebody, hey, you need to also think about your victim and the impact that that has on them. And how did you get to that place? Um, that is definitely true. And I got to that place for myself is by really when I, when I became accountable for my own actions, um, my own life, the, the actions that put me in prison for them 25 years, um, it allowed me to see my actions from my victim's perspective. I was this guy who had a gun up to their head, who was telling them to empty their pockets out who went into their home to tell them, um, give me all your, your valuables in your home. And nobody really wants that um, ever to happen to them. And because I had done that and now I was able to see it from their perspective, I was like, yeah, I wouldn't want that guy out on the street either. I would want that guy sitting in prison for the rest of his life also. But like I said, when I went to the parole board and they were there and they just listen to me talk. They was like, you're not the same person. I have, I get, I have some nice rapid fire questions. I give people at the end. I'm going to give you the same. Um, if, if you could meet one person in history, who would it be? And what would you say? If I can meet one person in history, ah, one person, that's a hard one. And it could be, it could be someone now too. It's, it could be someone alive or it could, it could be either in history or someone now i would probably like i would definitely like to meet obama i don't, don't you know, I, I, that's a good brother <laughs> he's a great speaker great orator gives great energy um he's done a lot and i if i could possibly model 
the way I just speak, and no one can speak as eloquently as him, in my opinion. <laughs> just, but it would be him just to sit down and just have a, a conversation about life and, I mean, the path that we both grew up in. I mean, the, we're both black men grew up in the United States, so it's very similar. He grew up in Chicago a lot, and I'm from Detroit. So it, there will be some similarities, but there was also the, the point where um, there was a divergence between our paths. <laughs> and what is your guilty pleasure food-wise? Um, when I initially got out, everything was my guilty pleasure. <laughs> I ate so much of everything. It was ridiculous. It didn't matter what it cost. I was like, yeah, give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Um, right now, um, I try to eat healthy. Um, so oddly enough, I really enjoy the um, the chicken salads at Chick-fil-A for some reason. <laughs> they just, they're, they're very good. That's your that's your guilty pleasure. And then <laughs> what kind of what is your favorite music? Um, I still listen to oldies for sure. The music that I grew up with. It's, it's like the soundtrack to my life. Uh, them, them soundtracks from like Shaft and uh, uh, Superfly and that that's the 70s R&B. Growing up in Detroit, if you didn't know Motown music, you can't call yourself being a Detroiter. <laughs> yeah, and one of the podcasts we had, a couple of podcasts back, we had um, a, a, a good throwback on The Temptations, so... Right. Yeah you, yeah, you should listen to that for sure. And um, what's on your bucket list? What, what's left for your bucket list? Um, well, I'll have my bachelor's in um, science this coming school year. And I'm looking at a master's program. So that's definitely on my bucket list. And I would like to start really, I want to take another hard path. I want to go into some of these red states that still see um, guys who are coming out of incarceration as these really unreformed people who deserve nothing in life. And that's really just making it harder for them to succeed and which really perpetuates the cycle of recidivism. I want to go into them states and be like, that's not what coming out of prison has to be. Um, it can be easier. Um, there are laws that are like on the books that really prevent guys from really succeeding after they get out of prison. I want to change a lot of that. Um, there are already groups out there doing it. Um, like in California, there's a great group called Time Done who's helping get a lot of those um, really defunct laws pushed out the books to help guys really just get into trades and schools or whatever they have they need to survive. I want to do that in in like Kentucky or one of them states where they just they have no love for somebody who's gotten out of prison before because they think you deserve nothing. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that you and I spoke with, and I'm going to ask you one last question after this is, um, it's always my final question, but one of the things that you you and I had a, a conversation about um, is it's not saying that you don't, you don't want people to be accountable for the things they did wrong. And like you said earlier, I wouldn't want some of these people on the street as well if they did bad things to people. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't get a second chance and, and it also doesn't mean that they can't that you don't make them accountable and i think that's one of the things you were taught you and i were talking about before is you give you want to give people a second chance but at the same time those people that do the wrong things need to be held accountable as well i don't think i've ever heard anyone say hey they shouldn't be accountable at all so you know what let's make their life difficult for them when they get out you know that is absolutely true and i'll give you a great example my younger brother, um, he's locked up right now. Um, he's he committed a murder and he's been locked up now for like 11 years. I talk to him maybe every other week or so, and I still listen to how he communicates with me. Um, you know how some guys, while they're in prison, um, they still have this this attitude where, oh, the white man did it, or um, if, if this wouldn't happen, then I wouldn't have did this or whatever. Um, even after 11 years in prison, he still has that attitude. And I try to tell him, you have to have some accountability for your action. Um, the white man didn't make you pull the trigger and kill that dude. You did it, regardless of what the situation was. And you have to own up to that. And until you own up to that, there's a lot of stuff in you that just ain't going to change. And that's from that's my own brother I be talking to. Yeah, I think that sometimes people they don't i think sometimes people think that when you're asking when you when you when you're providing assistance to people 
that in some ways that's synonymous with saying that you don't want somebody accountable for something. So I know you and I have had this conversation before, so I'm glad that you you uh, spoke about that. And then when I think when I, I always ask this last question because I think it's important. What do you want to be remembered for, Tim? When when you're no longer on this earth, what do you want? When people say Timothy Long, what do you want to be remembered for? I think I like to be remembered for giving more than I took from society. And I have taken a lot. Um, but every day I try to give back more um, to do the right thing when even though the right thing is hard to do, um, to say the hard things that needs to be said um, wherever I'm at. Um, even in the face of discrimination, um, some things need to be said and, and not just ignored or whatever. Um, it's easy to ignore um, the wrong things that people do um, and just say you didn't see it or you just didn't want to be part of it. Um, but I don't want to do the, the easy things anymore. If that's why I want to go to these harder states and do the hard job. Well, let me tell you, um, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for all you're doing in the community. Thank you for, you know, walking the walk. You're out there doing the hard work that a lot of people don't want to do. And yeah, just thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for turning your life around and just having the insight to figure it out before it was too late. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for being here, Tim. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for having me here. Have a happy new year, everybody. And join us next time for the next podcast. Keep learning. Take care.